Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. a blessing to be here with each and every one of you and um, this is my first time uh, not being here but I would say this is my first time being here with each and every one of you and so it's a blessing to see your faces I pray that your week went well Um, can you testify to that has God been good to you Amen. amen praise the Lord praise the Lord well I am glad to join Pastor Jeff here Um, And to join you all as well um, as a a volunteer, a lay pastor working beside him. I've been learning a lot from him and it's been a blessing. And I've also been with the board meetings that we've had, been learning from each and every one of you that were part of that board meeting. And I'm pleasantly blessed to meet you all today as well. And so as we go into our subject today, we're going to be talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit. And we're going to go in our Bibles to John chapter 16 and verse 7. But before we start, if you would join me in having a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that as we go into your word this day, that our minds might be illuminated, that our hearts might be strengthened, As we see the work that you desire to do in our lives by the third person of the Godhead, strengthen us and draw us ever closer to you. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. So if you would go in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 16, this is something that I have been studying recently, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit as he worked in the lives of the people of the early church, and as he desires to do a similar work, and I would even say a more powerful work, now at the end of time. God wants to pour out his Spirit, and he is more willing to do so than any father is willing to give good gifts to his children. And so as we look at this topic, I pray that it will be our desire to receive the Holy Ghost and in receiving him, have the power to live out the very life of Jesus in our lives. All right. So we're in John chapter 16 and we're going to start off at verse seven. And if you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. So it says there, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So let's break down that verse. Jesus Christ is giving some of his final discourses to his disciples. He's then going to continue in John chapter 17. And then soon after that, Jesus is going to be arrested and then crucified. But before he's arrested, he's leaving his disciples with these last words of instruction. And part of it is the instruction that comes after his death. The power that will come after his death and resurrection and ascension. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. Some of your Bibles may have the word profitable. It is necessary. It is for your advantage 
that I go away, for if I go not away, the who will not come? The comforter, all right? The comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, I was looking at this verse and trying to understand it. And what I was realizing is Jesus was saying that this is to your advantage, to his disciples, and trickling down through the centuries, through the ages, down to our time. He's saying this is advantageous for each and every one of us sitting here. Because Jesus Christ, while being God, he did what in order to save the human race? What did he take on? Right, he, take on our, he took on our sins. And in order to take that on, he had to become what first? He had to become a man, right? Now, in human flesh, it is crucial for us to understand that Jesus must operate as every man must operate. Could Jesus be... In Africa while at the same time being in Jerusalem no right so there were limitations that came with taking on the human frame there were limitations that came by taking on the human frame and so Jesus was seeking for a way to be everywhere at once with every believer strengthening every human being that would receive him and drawing all men to himself. But the way that he would do this now in human flesh is through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So by the Spirit, Jesus can be with all of us at once. And his presence by that Spirit can be so personal that it's as though we were the only person upon the earth. That's the beauty of God. You see, God can be with someone else personally and at the same time be with me personally. And he can work with me personally, fully known to him, yet at the same time fully loved by him, fully being worked upon by him through the instrumentality of the Holy Ghost. And so praise God for his spirit. So God says, Jesus says, I'll send you the comforter. Now, some of your Bibles may have the word helper. All right. The word there in the Greek language actually means someone who comes and he stands beside. He comes to help us in the trials of life, to strengthen our hearts, to encourage us. But notice this, I was thinking about this, I was like, Lord, in context, how does the Holy Spirit comfort us? And what I realized is that this is a very solemn point. The Holy Spirit does not comfort us in sin. All right, check this out. It says here in John chapter 16 and verse 8, and when he is come, here's the first thing that he will do. Here's the first way that he comforts. He will reprove the world of sin. So the powerful thing of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And the first thing that he does is he reveals to us our condition as it relates to God. And as we recognize that condition, our sinful condition, then he can do a work to change our lives to bring us into right relationship with God. So this is what we're going to focus on at this moment. How does the Holy Spirit reprove the world of sin? It says, and when he is come, verse 8, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
of sin because they believe not on me. Now, when Jesus is saying this, did the Jewish nation as a whole receive him or reject him? They rejected him, right? So when the Spirit comes, the Spirit was working in the life of Jesus Christ, working upon the hearts of people, working through His words upon the hearts of men. But the very people that He came unto, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. So the then-known world that Jesus was existing in, they rejected Him as the Messiah that the prophecies foretold. And so as they're rejecting him, what were they rejecting? They were rejecting the wooings of the Holy Spirit to turn the minds of men upon the Savior. And why would they not receive him? It's because they were looking for a military Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah that would cause the Gentiles to become slaves to Israel. And so when Jesus came... And he was loving not just the Jew, but the Samaritan, the Gentile. The mind of the Jewish leaders became furious because they realized, whoa, he's not going along with what we have taught the people. And what does that tell us, friends? This is a powerful point that I think is so imperative for us to ever remember. In order to become a Pharisee, You had to have memorized almost the entire Old Testament, which was the Bible back then. And so they had the entire word memorized. This was one of the criteria for becoming a Pharisee. So they had memorized the entire Bible, yet they had missed the God of the Bible when he came in flesh. What does that tell us? That tells us that we can memorize Scripture But if we do not understand it, we can miss the one of whom Scripture testifies. It is good to memorize the word, but it is even better to understand that word and what it means to us. So, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin in that they did not believe on me. Now, what happens, however, when we believe in Jesus? The work of the Spirit is to convict us, hey, we don't believe in Christ as we should, and then it is His same work to turn us to Jesus Christ so that we would believe. Now, I wonder what happens when we do believe. Keep your fingers there in the book of John and go with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. What happens, Romans chapter 8, what happens when we do believe? Romans chapter 8. And when you are there, say amen. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. Amen. So the Spirit of God comes, He convicts us that we must come to a point where we believe in Christ. But what happens when we believe in Christ as we are wooed to that point by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit does a powerful work at that moment. Once we are in Christ, once we have received Him, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are what? The sons of God. So if we are led by His Spirit, what do we have the good news of? We are God's children. This is why we want to be led by the Spirit. For a true son or a true daughter of God lives in harmony with God. They obey Him. And when that happens, it continues by saying now in verse 15, For you have not received the Spirit. Once we are now being led by the Spirit, we have not received the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, this is powerful because the Bible is telling us here, once we now believe in Jesus, once we are now in Jesus, being led by His Spirit, we now become His sons and daughters. But when we become His sons and daughters, the Bible says the spirit of bondage to fear leaves. Now, when you look at that word spirit there, your Bibles has it all in common letters, right? The first S in that word spirit in verse 15 is not in caps. So it's speaking not about the Holy Spirit, but the word there in the actual Greek language means our spirit, the mind. So when we read in verse 16 now, and it says the spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, itself bears witness with our spirit. That is our minds, our hearts, that we are what? Children of God. All right? So what the Holy Spirit does is when He comes into our lives, His great work is to lead us to Jesus Christ. Once we receive Jesus Christ, we no longer live in fear. The mindset of fear is broken. When we look out into our world today, friends, there's something I realized, and I had this very thing happen in my own testimony as it concerns my conversion experience. Before I knew Jesus, I lived in fear. I remember there was a time that I believed I would have dreams before I was converted of burning in the fires of hell for eternity, being lost for eternity. And my heart was so afraid that if I passed, I would have no hope. And this was only at the age of 10, and it went on until I became a serious Christian at the age of 16, going to a series of prophecy meetings and my entire life being transformed. It happened actually right up the street um, in, in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I remembered I lived in fear. I didn't know what was going to happen at the next moment. I didn't know my purpose. I didn't know my purpose for existence. I didn't know what my life had in store. You could ask my mother. One day she thought she, she saw me. You're talking about, uh, about diet. Every day as I was going home, I would want Mickey D's. I ate Mickey D's like crazy. At one moment, my mom told me, she said, son... After this was years after I was converted, she said, son, you know, I thought by the age of 20, you might be dead. <laughs> With as much stuff I, as I was eating, 
that was messed up for my body with, which has, with as much trouble as I was causing at school. Every day, it came to a point where certain times my parents would get calls. It may not look like it right now, but at school, I was the class clown. Causing chaos in school. And then blaming it on my friends that were right next to me. And so in light of all of these things, my mom and dad, they were very worried. But then I remembered when I came to know Jesus. And when His Holy Spirit began to change my heart that then the fear began to subside. I began to have a purpose for living. And as a result of having that purpose, in relation to knowing the God of my purpose, Jesus, friends, the Spirit then began to loosen my mind to the point where now it was not a mind that was subjugated to fear and being afraid of what the future holds. Because I knew him who holds the future. If we can trust in God to that point, if we can trust in Jesus, this is the Spirit's work in our life. To take away that fear, so no longer is our mind, our minds in bondage to that fear. It's not that the fear won't come. It's not that the weapons won't be formed. But the weapon will not prosper. The fear will not have dominance. Why? Because we trust in Him who is above every crisis. And so, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is to liberate our minds from fear. But notice, it also says the Spirit itself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. A statement that came to my mind in the Old Testament is that upon two or three witnesses, let something be established, right? So look at what the Holy Spirit does. He comes into our lives as we receive Jesus. He causes us to be liberated from bondage to fear. And then he establishes our minds in our sonship. And as he establishes our minds in that sonship, he says, I bear witness that you are a son. Then I convince your mind, the Holy Spirit says, that you are a son or a daughter. And then he looks to God and he says, we have two witnesses. This man and woman's mind and what I have caused them to believe. So the Holy Spirit bears witness and we in turn also become a witness that we are the sons and daughters of God. So he establishes us in that reality. So when we go about our day, how do we walk then? As though we are sons and daughters of God. In other words, we walk in complete faith, knowing that my life is the responsibility now of Jehovah. And he will do me no wrong. He will only do good to me, right? Even through the trials of life, God is still good. Now, it says here in verse 17, and this part blew my mind away. Now that we are children, we have all the benefits of children. It says, and if children, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with who? With Christ. Now, friends, the Old Testament term for that is co-regents. That means two kings reigning at the same time in the same kingdom. 
So think about this. We are joint heirs with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that tell us? That means whatever Christ owns, and how much is that? Everything is now ours because we are joint heirs. In other words, the entire universe is, for, is now for our benefit. Everything that belongs to Jesus, he says, now that you are in me, you can benefit from all of these things. Friends, this is powerful. That fallen as we may be in Jesus, we have all authority behind us. We have all power at our disposal. This is good news. Amen? All right. So now, go back with me in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 16, I should say. John chapter 16, and we're going to continue here with our next two parts. It says in John chapter 9, John chapter 16 and verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. When we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we become sons and we receive all the benefits that Christ has to offer, which is all the riches of the universe. Our minds are liberated from bondage. But notice this. Then Jesus says of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. So as it concerns Jesus, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will convict you that I'm going to the father. Now we're going to look at why Jesus could go to the father. But first, we're going to look at something that the disciples have the benefit of seeing. Skip down to verse 16 of John chapter 16. It says here, a little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me because I go where? To the Father. Now notice, the world cannot see Christ because he has gone to the Father. But the disciples of Christ, they can't see him. Do you see that? So even though the world can see Jesus because he is gone, he's up in heaven right now, we can still see him. You would think that he would say, Jesus would say, because I go to my father, to his disciples, you can't see me. But he says, even though I go there, by faith, you can still see me. How? Friends, it is through Christ's representative. You see, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we realize that Christ is still working in the world. That we can see His works in the lives of others as the Spirit changes the lives of men and women. That is a testimony that Jesus, even though He's in heaven, through His Spirit, He's still here. Does that make sense? So God is saying, Jesus is saying, of righteousness. Why? Because I go to my father and ye see me no more. But then he tells him in verse 16, you'll see me still because I'll still be at work in the world and I'll still be beside you as the comforter. I'll still be strengthening you moment by moment and day by day through the trials that you face. You won't have to go through the warfare alone. Hence, Jesus tells them, I will be with you. How long? Until the end of the world. How? By the Holy Spirit. So friends, we want that spirit. Now an interesting thing I was noticing here. 
is Jesus says of righteousness because I go to my father. Because Jesus was righteous, he could stand before God. He could ascend to the father. Now, I want you to hold your fingers there with me in John 16 and go with me to the Old Testament. All right. This is something that I noticed that is very beautiful in terms of prophecy and in terms of what God is showing us concerning the Messiah's ministry. So we're going back to Psalm 22, Psalm division 22. And when you're there, say amen. Psalm division 22. And we're going to notice something here concerning Jesus Christ. And when I found this out, it blew my mind. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to the father and I can go to him because I am righteous. I've lived a holy life. Therefore, even though he had to go through the grave, the grave could not hold him. Why? Because there was no sin in that holy life. And so he rose the third day, and 40 days after that, he ascended to the Father the final time. Now, why is it that he could ascend to God? I want you to notice something with me. So Psalm chapter 22, it says, and tell me if you recognize these words in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Tell me, when was this verse fulfilled? On the cross. So Psalm 22 is dealing with what then? The crucifixion. All right? That one verse shows us what was going on at the crucifixion scene. And it shows the crucifixion scene, therefore, in the rest of the chapter. One verse was quoted, but the entire crucifixion experience is delineated in the rest of the chapter. Now, in Psalm chapter 23, and I want you to go to verse 4. Psalm chapter 23 and verse 4. So Psalm 22, the crucifixion. Psalm 23, verse 4 says... Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What aspect of Jesus' life was that? The grave, right? So Psalm 22, the crucifixion. Psalm 23, Christ in the grave. What do you think Psalm 24 will be about? The resurrection and the ascension. So go there with me. Psalm chapter 24. And this is what it says in verse 3. Psalm chapter 24 and verse 3. And I'm going to read to you guys a statement from the powerful book that's even in the Library of Congress. It's a powerful book on the history of Jesus Christ or the life of Christ called Desire of Ages. Before we read that, I want to read it to you from the Bible. It says in verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? In other words, who will ascend to where God is? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then we have a song. It says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Another group answers, Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Another group answers, Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, when did this happen? When did this happen? This blew my mind when I first read it. This is found in the powerful book, Desire of Ages, page 833, starting from paragraph 2. All right, Desire of Ages, 833. It states there, all heaven. So Jesus is now ascending to the heavenly heights. He's left his disciples. You can imagine the scene, friends. As he's speaking to them, he's leaving them with a great commission. And what's happening to him as he's saying this? He's ascending, right? So as he's ascending, he disappears behind the clouds ultimately. And you can imagine the scene. The disciples have never seen this. So the Bible says they're still gazing. And then two men in white apparel. Who's those two men? Angels. Tells them, why do you stand gazing here? There's a work to be done. This same Jesus who left you will come in like manner as you've seen him go. So Jesus is now ascending and it comes to a certain point where he begins to come close to the courts of heaven. I want to read to you the scene. It says, all heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. The heavenly host with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song attended the joyous train. As they drew near the city of God, you ready? The challenge is given by the escorting angels. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Joyfully now the waiting sentinels respond. Those inside of the, of the city. They say, who is this king of glory? They, this they say, not because they know not who he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall I'll come in again is heard the challenge who is this king of glory for the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted the escorting angels reply the lord of hosts he is the king of glory then the portals of the city of god are opened wide and the angelic throngs sweep through the gates amid a burst of rapturous music friends So what is Psalm 24 telling us when it says lift up your heads? It's telling us about the ascension and the entrance of Jesus into the courts of heaven. So we have the crucifixion, Psalm 22, the death, Psalm 23, and the resurrection and ascension of Christ to heaven, Psalm 24. And why could Christ ascend to the heavenly gates? Because as it says in Psalm 24, only he who has pure hands and a clean heart, or pure heart and clean hands, can ascend to that city. He was righteous. 
Therefore, he could stand before God. So what God is saying, what Christ is saying to us when he says of righteousness because I go to my Father, he's really saying that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict you and I that indeed Jesus is the righteous one who has the power and the authority to stand before God and intercede on our behalf. He stands at God's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. That even when we fall, the Bible tells us, we have an advocate with the Father. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen? Take heart, my friends. Have you fallen today? Have you fallen this past week? Take heart. We have an advocate. We have one who can raise us up again. And lastly, it states in John chapter 16 once again, it says, and of judgment, verse 11, John chapter 16 and verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And I realize that's what happens when the Holy Spirit falls. When he falls upon the earth and he falls upon people gathered, may he even fall here today. As he falls, what takes place is as he is poured out, we are convicted to come to Jesus. We are convicted that Jesus is our great righteousness that stands as our advocate before the Father. And as we turn to Christ, as we come to him, friends, the devil is judged. In other words, what happens is his power in our lives becomes more limited. God, until God finally vanquishes the foe in the lives of the saints. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is that when he is poured out, he depopulates the kingdom of Satan. He takes men out of the kingdom of darkness and brings them to the kingdom of light that they might, marvelous light, that they might reflect that light to the world. And that light is the very life of Jesus Christ. Hence, we read here in verse 16, it tells us this powerful statement. Actually, not verse 16, but let's go to verse 14. It says, verse 14, it says, When the Spirit of truth shall come, he shall glorify me. Chapter 15 and verse 26 says the same thing. It says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the great work of the Holy Spirit, friends, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is in a place? It is when Jesus is uplifted. For what is his main work? In revealing what is to come, in revealing our condition, in revealing heaven to us, in limiting the work of Satan in our lives, his whole purpose is to glorify the Son of God. So, the second person of the Godhead came down to glorify the first person. And the third person came down in order to glorify the second person. You see, they all work to glorify each other. They are selfless in their operations. And so when their work is done in our lives, what will we then become? Selfless. We will love one another with the love of God, which is a love that seeks to exalt our neighbor. 
It's a love that seeks to lift up the downtrodden, to lift up the broken, to mend the hearts of men and women, that they might know and receive a practical revelation that indeed Jesus lives. How? Because they see them. They see him in your life and mine. Does this make sense to us, friends? May we then pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our lives, that the work of the Spirit that we just read about may be done in each and every one of us. If this is your prayer and your desire, I ask you to bow your heads with me as we close. Father in heaven, I pray that, Lord, you may pour out the Spirit upon our lives. That as he is poured out, what may be the result is that Jesus will be uplifted. For he is your representative. Lord, I pray, O God, that our hearts, if there is any fear, may be liberated from that fear. That we might have assurance of our sonship. That we are indeed children of God. Lord, strengthen us by that spirit. And I pray that we may walk indeed as sons and daughters. We thank you that the Son of God became the Son of Man. That the sons of men might become sons and daughters of God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. May he be exalted and uplifted in our lives by the Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.